Good morning, my name's Andrew, and uh, I too was traumatised as a child, Tom, uh, and by sharing your story, you've brought back some memories for me, which I'll try to put aside, but the, the sense of being forsaken, being abandoned, is surely one of the most traumatic experiences as a human being, because we are social, relational beings. The rise of the cancel culture undoubtedly is intended to inflict financial pain on their opponents, but also it inflicts great emotional pain as well. We see it in the schoolyard with groups of children. Of course, there's always the natural ebb and flow of relationships, but sometimes there is an in-crowd, isn't there, that inflicts their influence and venom to isolate other kids. And sadly, it also happens within families. A careless word is said. Certain behaviour creates a rift in the family that is felt for years, sometimes even generations. The closer the relationship, the deeper we feel the pain of rejection and isolation. On Palm Sunday, one week before Passover, Jesus enters Jerusalem with celebrity status. Crowds are lining the streets shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It cannot get any better than this. A few days later, he is sharing the Passover meal with his closest disciples and Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. After that, they went out of the city to the Mount of Olives nearby, and he said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then late in the evening in the Garden of Gethsemane, while the disciples themselves are struggling to stay awake, Jesus prays with urgency and anguish to his heavenly Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then the soldiers arrive. Jesus is betrayed. He is arrested and escorted away. By daybreak, he has been handed over to be executed. And on the Friday, from midday till three in the afternoon, there is darkness. On the cross, Jesus cries out <clears throat> in a loud voice, so everyone can hear him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The physical pain would be unimaginable. But for someone who even in the last 24 hours has been repeatedly declared innocent, now to be executed in such a manner as to suggest that he is under the very curse of God, is just all wrong. And God the Father appears silent. Why have you forsaken me? What does Jesus mean by these words? That's what I'd like us to reflect on this morning. It's actually the first words from Psalm 22. This is in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. It's a psalm, a poem, written by King David. 
You can see that in the heading to the psalm that we find in our English Bibles as well, along with some directions for the director of music, presumably to some tune that was well known to them, but not to us. It's possible that before chapter numbers and verse numbers were introduced into our Bibles, that in order to make it easier to find certain passages, things like the Psalms uh, may well have been known by their first line, in the similar way that uh, some of our pop songs today do that as well. Their first line, or at least some significant quote within the Psalm. If that were the case, then when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Perhaps it's not simply a cry of personal pain or anguish, but there's something more important that he wants us to hear from Psalm 22. So this morning I want us to just step through the psalm, to hear its message and to reflect together on why Jesus uses his dying breath to draw our attention to this passage. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. What an awful situation to be in. To cry out for help and have no one there to answer. This is a cry of desperation by a man who feels abandoned by God. It reminds me of another man in the Old Testament, Job, who experienced uh, similar extraordinary physical suffering, but whose greatest distress was ultimately the, the inward turmoil of God's delayed response to his prayers. Nowadays, we find it um, hard and even frustrating when someone doesn't reply to our messages, an urgent email, a text message, or a phone call. Now, sometimes that's, uh, of course, because our phone has gone flat. Uh, We're at work and can't answer the, the phone or whatever, or for whatever reason, we don't get the message. But God is not like that. He's not busy. He's not driving, he's not in class, he's not stuck on the bus, the toilet. He hasn't left his phone in airplane mode. Which explains why David here in this psalm is so tormented by God's apparent silence. He's crying out to God. He's left multiple messages day and night, but God does not answer. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. See, David's pain at this point is amplified because in the past, his ancestors trusted God and God heard them. God answered them. He delivered them. God has proven himself to be faithful to his people in former generations. He heard their cries from slavery in Egypt and he saved them. During the period of the judges, when they cried out because of their oppressors, he heard them, raised up judges and saviors for them. In the past, when God's people cried out to God to save them, he did. 
but now he is silent. There's no question about God's ability to save, so why doesn't he answer? It makes him look like a fool, doesn't it? He says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Scorned, despised, mocked, insulted. It seems it's not because of anything that he's done, but he's being ridiculed and mocked precisely because he trusts in the Lord. They're taunting him, actually, to cry out to the very God that he has his faith in to save him. Precisely the very thing that he longs to do. But his life is hanging by a thread. I am a worm and not a man. But while his situation may seem hopeless, he is not without hope. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Sometimes our struggles seem so powerful, even overwhelming, that that's all we can see. And our tendency is actually to forget the past. Our present pain and anguish gives us a kind of temporary amnesia about the past. It's interesting that nowadays management gurus remind us that past behaviour is the most reliable predictor of future behaviour. It's nothing new. I think this is where David finds his strength at this point. He's reminding himself of God's past care, not just among generations gone by, that's somehow distant. But even as he reflects on his own life, from my mother's womb you have been my God. God in his good timing has never ceased to be faithful, either to the people of God throughout generations or even in his own life. What a wonderful testimony that God gives us to reflect on his faithfulness in our own life. So even in the midst of God's apparent silence, and anguish that that brings, his hope is still in God. Verse 11, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. When we feel alone and isolated, we would do well to remember that our only source of hope is not to be found within ourselves, not some kind of pop psychology to say that life will get better in the end. Our hope is not to be found within, but without, in the faithfulness of God. From verse 12, he gives a picture of his situation. We know from the start of the psalm that his situation is not in itself metaphorical. It's not imaginary. It's very real. But he uses the metaphors of wild animals seeking to devour him. 
to communicate something of the viciousness of their attacks. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord... Do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Bulls, lions, dogs, these are vicious animals. His life is hanging by a thread. He says in verse 17, all my bones are on display. It reminds me of those grotesque pictures of prisoners of war from World War II where they are so malnourished that you can count all their ribs. They're a walking skeleton just with skin that is draped over the top. In verse 18, he's about to die so he has no need of his clothes anymore. I think describing his attackers using the language of vicious animals, they're metaphors, but they're metaphors which communicate reality. David isn't just having a bad day at the office. These problems won't blow over with a good night's sleep. The ferocity of his enemies means that death is inevitable. Yet he still prays in verse 20, deliver me, rescue me. As we read on, it's difficult to imagine how that is at all possible. Which makes the shift in mood from verse 22 all the more astonishing. In, in verse 22, we shift to the second part of the psalm. Of the 150 psalms in the Bible, roughly about a third of them fit this kind of pattern. They call them psalms of lament. It's a very simple structure. The first part of the psalm is a cry to God for help, usually because there's an there's enemy or some uh, disastrous situation. And in the second half of the psalm, the psalmist will either look back and praise God for, for his rescue, or we'll look forward to a time when God will rescue in, in great confidence and assurance. And that is exactly what we find here. When you get to verse 22, he is no longer in the midst of imminent death, but we find ourselves now on the other side of, of some miraculous rescue. God has heard his plea and saved him. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. 
From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Because of this great rescue, he is overflowing with praise to God. Great joy in his heart that he he is spending his life trying to gather more people to join him in praise to God. Those who fear the Lord should praise God. In the psalm here, we're not told how this rescue came about what the means of his salvation was. Instead, once we get to this point of celebrating the rescue, perhaps those sort of details don't seem that important after all. Here is a man who remained faithful to the point of death, who trusted in the faithfulness of God with his dying breath, his unwavering trust in God alone to save him is ultimately vindicated, despite the vicious persecution of his enemies. I think what shines through in this psalm is that this is such an astonishing rescue from death that David isn't the only one who goes on to praise God. It's it's not even his friends. It's not only his friends at church, uh, if I was to use that word. Because... Look at what he says next. If I can click the slide correctly. Here we go. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Well, news of this remarkable rescue, this astonishing salvation, will go to the ends of the earth, to the nations, the Gentiles, those who are not of Israel, those who actually, even through the book of Psalms, have, have generally been have setting themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, wanting to reject his kingship. But when they hear about this rescue... My goodness, then they too will fall in line and worship God. But it doesn't stop there. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. News of this astonishing rescue from death will go to all people, geographically to the ends of the earth, but also generationally to the people yet unborn, to generations to come. Ultimately, this psalm is a psalm of vindication to to God's divinely appointed king. God is not silent. He's not abandoned or forsaken his servant, nor has he forsaken his people, whether it be in exile or in the depth of their own sin. Instead, this man's miraculous salvation from death is the cause of eternal praise and worship. Countless 
people all over the world and down through history will say, he has done it. There is no doubt that the physical pain and suffering of crucifixion was extreme. And that being abandoned by his closest friends at his time of greatest need would have, would have been enough to push anyone to their limit. But to be executed on the cross is, in the language of the Old Testament, to be cursed by God. So what does Jesus mean when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not as if the cross took him by surprise. In the course of his ministry, Jesus has on at least three occasions explicitly tried to teach his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and there the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. This is not taking Jesus by surprise. The emphasis is not on why. His anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane before his arrest testifies to his awareness of what is about to come. So I don't think Jesus' words on the cross here flow out of ignorance. It's not as if he's surprised by what's happening to him or that he's expecting any other outcome. No, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus uses his dying breath to speak words of comfort, not confusion. God is not silent, but he is faithfully working his purposes out so that he will not abandon those who put their trust in him. Pain and persecution may come in this life, but death is not the end. There is a resurrection to come which invites people from all nations and from all history to turn to God. We're not told in this psalm nor in the books of Samuel or Chronicles what were the specific circumstances that King David experienced that prompted him to write this psalm. But we do know that it speaks wonderful truths of the one who is to come, the descendant of David, who was to rule all nations. These wonderful truths which come into focus only with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth these words, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do confess the brokenness of our own world and we confess the brokenness even of our own heart. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to generations of your people who cried out to you, to be saved, and you heard them. Father, hear our cry today. Father, save us and forgive us. 
As we are reminded today of the death of Jesus, we bring before you our own sin and our rebellion and we walk away in forgiveness and righteousness. We long for that day when we will join with the myriad of people down through the ages and in different languages praising your defeat of sin and death, celebrating your victory and resurrection. Father, thank you for comforting us in our pain, for giving us hope in our brokenness, and for giving us joy in our faith in Jesus. Amen.